Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses your stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today's topic, drawing from fiction. We work as journalists, so we are all about nonfiction professionally, but we both enjoy fiction, and we wanted to talk about some of the lessons drawn from that genre. So I was an English major, uh, full disclosure. I read a million novels in undergraduate rather than doing nonfiction and journalism. Um, but now I've kind of drifted away from novels a lot, and I mostly read short stories and magazines. Every week I read The New Yorker. Um, I read it for the nonfiction, but I start with the one fiction story because that's my treat to myself. And in two or three pages, writers from every culture are shaping snippets of their worlds, their struggles and joys, their questions and concerns, and moments of everyday lives we might never live, but they let us dip into for a few pages. The voices are always so strong. The writing is captivating and transportive. I always find inspiration and ideas from these fictional treats, and I wonder, how did that writer do that? I read first for pleasure, then I deconstruct. Kind of like Maria edits my stories, I hope. <laughs> so just from the last two weeks of The New Yorker, I went, something I really took away from these short stories, and they're all different, but they all have a similarity in that the way they drop you into the story is usually like a short declarative sentence. It's not like a long Steinbecky, like here's the dinosaurs on the lava cooled. It's like dropping you into a moment. So just the, and they're short and to the point and subject verb. It's been 30 years since I saw Soraya. And that time I tried to find her only once. Okay, you're right in the middle of that story, right? Who the heck is Soraya? And why didn't you try to find her? And why are we talking about her now, right? And then this story starts, Amanda surprised me when she said we had to move. I'd barely got out the door, barely been in the hall of our apartment a second, when she passed in and out of my peripheral vision, catching sight of me and making her announcement. So they, they all kind of start with something's going to happen, right? They don't really tell you who these people are or where they are even necessarily, but they drop you in with this declarative statement. And I just think that's such a strong way when you don't have a whole novel, when you don't have chapters to develop things like that, to say, okay, if I, my story is only going to be 10 inches or, you know, 100, I don't even know, 10,000 10, words, even that amount, you don't have what you have in a novel, Um so I've been gravitating more toward um, short stories and I've built a bookshelf over coronavirus here that's got one whole shelf of my favorite short story collections. Second shelf from the top, it's right behind me in my little office and I put all my favorite anthologies there. I've got Ernest Hemingway, Flannery O'Connor, Mark Twain, J.B. Salinger, Dorothy Parker, Truman Capote, Rudyard Kipling, Nick Hornby, Edgar Allan Poe, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I could go on and on about the authors, but I also collect annual anthologies and you can often find a lot of these in like used bookstores for a dollar or two. I mean, every year for the last 20 years, they've put out a pushcart prize, new stories of the South, best American non-required reading. I thumb, them, I thumb through them when I get stuck 
sometimes escaping for the whole story, other times just diving into the opening, reading the ending, or searching for gold coins. Along the way, I note things the writer did to engulf me in the narrative and think about things I could try to emulate with whatever true story I have to tell. So we, we want to, uh, so Lane's gone through and she's picked out some examples. So we, we thought we'd talk about, you know, some of, the, some of the things that we draw from fiction and then use some of these examples to talk about them. So with openings, um, and like you said, you're looking for something that's obviously going to grab people and you want to read from Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I think openings are the easiest things to steal from because you could just open a million short stories and read the first two paragraphs and then get We're not idea. talking about plagiarism here. We're talking about just inspiration. <laughs> a, mile, a, a mindset, you know, a way to, way to like unstick your own brain, I think. Um, so Gabriel Garcia Marquez, this is actually a novella. It's a little longer than a short story, but it's called Chronicle of a Death Foretold. And this actually inspired the opening for my story on the long, the long fall of Phoebe Chanchuk. It wasn't my genius that inspired it. I was talking at Indiana University and one of the students said, oh my God, that sounds just like the story we just read in English class. And I had, I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but I hadn't read that story. And it basically starts with, you know he's gonna die. And that's kind of how my Phoebe story started. It was a little girl who, you know, when you're reading the story, she's gonna die. So this is what uh, Marquez wrote. On the day they were gonna kill him, Santiago Nassar got up at 5.30 in the morning to wait for the boat the bishop was coming on. He dreamed he was going through a grove of timber trees where a gentle drizzle was falling. And for an instant, he was happy in his dream. Starts right away with the tension. Like, yeah, he's gonna die, but then he's happy in his dream, right? And you, the whole rest of the book, you're gonna follow to find out what happened, right? That's a good one. Yeah, so oh, I didn't realize that had inspired the, uh, the Phoebe beginning. Uh, yeah. It was one of the students in Kelly Bedroom French's class was like, hey, how about, and I hadn't written the lead yet. I just kind of knew where I wanted to start. So, see, and I, so I, I gravitate more towards books and novels. And um, that be, the beginning for me always sort of tells me whether I'm going to like it or not. It's sort of like, does it, am I captivated right from the start, even if it's a slow lead in, but is it, is it getting me, is it driving me forward? Right. Does it make you wonder about something or want to know more? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I usually give a novel three pages, but I give a short story three paragraphs. <laughs> if I'm not there, <laughs> and then you're done. Forget about it. <laughs> you don't have me, you're out. Um, yeah, my readers are more generous. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Lane, damn, they're gone in three, three paragraphs. <laughs> we got to work harder. Um, uh, on character development, right? That's, I guess, the best fiction writers really bring a person to life. So, um, and really help you I, and again, I've been choosing the right details and, you know, what those details are and how do they do that. So you picked uh, Truman, Truman Capote here. Truman Capote. And Truman Capote, I think, is really good about having, like, very small secondary characters. Because in most of my stories, I don't have room for more than one main character in my, you know, my journalism. So um, this is called uh, The Thanksgiving Visitor, he wrote about. And it actually inspired my opening to Evil Knievel. Uh, I had to write about this guy who was my hero, who was like the meanest human being <laughs> I ever interviewed. Um, but these are Truman Capote's words. Talk about mean. Odd Henderson was the meanest human creature in my experience. And I'm speaking of a 12-year-old boy, not some grown-up who's had the time to ripen a naturally evil disposition. At least, Odd was 12 in 1932, when we were both second graders attending a small town school in rural Alabama. So here's a 1930s story about bullying, you know, and talk about mean exclamation point. That's his lead. 
That, that's good. Yeah. So that inspired evil. <laughs> yeah. Evil from evil. He goes on, you know, Truman Capote goes on. And I did the same thing with evil, like the juxtaposition of this little boy or this old, old, old man with this meanness inside, you know, and I, I kind of, I like that character development. Not what you're I've, never, I've never forgotten the phone call I got from you after you went to see evil. We weren't working together then, but you were like, he was so mean. He was just such a mean man. I had big crocodile tears on my notepad. He made me cry. <laughs> Evil. Um, so talked about setting a scene and building a sense of place, which of course, I mean, we really talk a lot about in terms of our stories too, but um, here, you wanna, this, this, did this inspire a particular story or you just like this story? Well, actually I had a bunch of things I was looking at for examples for this, but they were all sort of pastoral or describing a small town. And so transporting you maybe to someplace really rural. And I thought, well, Sometimes being in a very small contained space is just as powerful as like seeing over fields and mountains and streams. And so this is a story by Mary Gateskill called The Little Boy. Um, Mrs. B. Davis walked through an enormous light fluxing corridor of the Detroit airport, whispering to no one visible. I love you, I love you so much. The walls of the corridor were made of glowing translucent oblongs, electronically lit with color that oblong by oblong ignited in a forward rolling pattern red, purple, blue, green, and pale green. I love you, dear, whispered Mrs. Davis. I love you so. Hmm. So you have the warmth of this old lady, I don't know, practicing to say she loves you to somebody, but the sterile and impersonal environment of the airport, you know, and you can probably picture anybody who's been in an airport, but we haven't been in one in a while, I guess, but you know, there's those long people mover <laughs> corridors with tubes of lights and the sterility of it. And there's no smells in there. There's no taste in there, which, you know, I love sensory details, but I think the sterility of that um, is part of what's setting the scene there. So we talk moving on, moving on to uh, physical descriptions, which I, I think are hard for a lot of writers because you never know what exactly to pick on. Like what, what do you, what really brings a person to life, right? Yeah, and I actually, when I had few words, I found myself wasting a lot of time and a lot of word count on physical descriptions. So if there's a great photo or portrait to go with it, I'll kind of back off anymore. I won't spend those couple paragraphs doing that or like taxing my brain to make it sound not trite. Because I think so much writing about physical descriptions is trite. And you either feel like you're stereotyping somebody or you're not doing them justice. Um, I think about that line, sometimes all you need is a little tiny bit of the physical description, especially if you're trying to remind people. And um, I remember from Ulysses, they, every time they go back, every time Homer goes back to like Athena, he says Athena with her gray eyes glinting. And that's all you know about Athena. But every time he says Athena, that's what you get. And so I think about that, like if I'm covering a protest or I'm covering a vigil, I'll say, you know, the guy in the yellow hat or the girl with the blue rain boots on, you know, where you're just getting a little tiny bit to identify that person, make them stand up from the crowd, but you're not going on and on about what they look like, you know. Um, I think the best, and actually this is kind of what made me put down my pen about physical descriptions, was when I read A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, and I am only giving you guys the first paragraph, but this goes on for about five more paragraphs, and it's like the best physical description ever. A green hunting cap squeezed the top of the fleshy balloon of a head. The green ear flaps, full of large ears and uncut hair, and the fine bristles that grew in the ears themselves, stuck out on either side like turn signals indicating two directions at once. Full pursed lips protruded beneath the bushy black mustache, and 
at their corners sank into little folds filled with disapproval and potato chip crumbs. That's such a great book. And yeah. <laughs> disapproval and potato chip crumbs. Don't you just want to know this man now? <laughs> Not really. I think I'd avoid him if he was coming toward me on the street, but you would. You would go talk to him. I would totally talk to him. <laughs> um, in another category, we talked about leaving a trail, right? So, um, and a lot of the best storytelling is like, it leaves you, you know, gold coins is what Roy Peter Clark calls them, or um, crumbs, breadcrumbs along the way. A little Something to kind of uh, reward you for having stuck with it, right? So this one I haven't read, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Oh, this is a haunting story. So it starts out, it, um, it's in a small town in a rural community, and they start out talking about the people who are all coming to the day, and it gets dark really, really, really fast. And um, I won't be a spoiler alert, but this, the, see if you can gather what's going to happen from the first couple paragraphs. Uh, so Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. The people of the village begin to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 2nd. But in this village, there were only about 300 people. So the whole lottery took less than two hours. It could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Soon, the men began to gather, surveying their own children, Speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes, they stood together away from the pile of stones in the corner. Ooh, someone, someone's about to die. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> oh. this, I love how she, she weaves together the most mundane things of like a small town gathering with talk of trucks and tractors and then keeps planting these stones in the pockets in the corner in the piles. And you're like, what are you gonna do with the stones? <laughs> um, so also, suspense right um providing just enough information um and and trying to keep readers hanging in there so uh yeah i like that you picked edgar Allan poe here yeah shout out to my uva comrade who got kicked out of the university of virginia <laughs> <laughs> but he's um he's one of the most suspenseful writers i think still you know and in his writing gives me it's haunting and it usually like picks up speed at the end so he slowly builds the suspense in these kind of mundane ways. And then you get to the end and you like got to hold onto the train because it's rolling down the mountain. Um, so this is from the Telltale Heart. My easy, quiet manner made the policemen believe my story. So they sat talking with me in a friendly way. But although I answered them in the same way, I soon wished that they would go. My head hurt and there was a strange sound in my ears. I talked more and faster. The sound became clearer and still they sat and talked. Suddenly, I knew that the sound was not in my ears. It was not just inside my head. At that moment, I must have become quite white. I talked faster still and louder, and the sound too became louder. It was a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall, a sound I knew well. Louder, it became and louder. Why did the men not go? Louder, louder, I stood up and walked quickly around the room. I pushed my chair across the floor to make more noise, to cover that terrible sound. I talked even louder. And still the man sat and talked and smiled. Was it possible they could not hear? No, they heard. I was certain of it. They knew. So um, 
I was, I was thinking too of Alfred Hitchcock when you talk about suspense, because that was such a big thing in his films, but that idea that, uh, and, and going along too with the whole idea of being patient and letting things sort of unfold and giving people a chance to sort of um, get caught up in the moment with you and then, and then deliver whatever the punch is going to be. But, but yeah, that's a good one. Um, well, in his first person, I think too, it like it draws the readers in, you know what's going on, but you know the cops don't really know what's going on. So there's this interesting intimacy that's created, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, talk about the climax and the resolution. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's one thing that um, short stories do so, so very well. Sometimes novels have multiple ones, you know, and you can't really figure out what's the climax or is there a resolution or is it going to lead to another complication? And I think most journalism doesn't really have a climax, unfortunately, you know, even some longer narratives, you kind of forget, oh, you're supposed to build to something and then have a denouement. Um, so I love that when I find ones in, in short stories that are just so clear. Um, so Flannery O'Connor is always my first go-to and has been since I was a little girl. I love her voice. I love her sarcasm. I love her view of the world. I love the way she creates characters and situations. Um, this story haunts me still. I see this dream in my head from reading this story when I was like a teenager. It's about this young woman. I think she's in her 30s. Um, she has a wooden leg, but she's super smart and she's sassy and she's got a PhD and everybody else in her town is uneducated, so she feels all superior to them. And she's a virgin and she's never been kissed. So this like young Bible salesman guy comes to the farm and tries to sell Bibles to them. And he kind of seduces her and, and this is the point this whole story builds to this very gently he began to roll the slack leg up the artificial limb in a white sock and brown flat shoe was bound in a heavy material like canvas and ended in an ugly jointure where it was attached to her stump the boy's face and his voice were entirely reverent as he uncovered it and said now show me how to take it on and off she took it off for him and put it back on again and then he took it off himself handling it as tenderly as if it were a real one. See, he said with a delighted child's face, now I can do it myself. Put it back on, she said. She was thinking that she would run away with him and that every night he would take the leg off and every morning put it back on again. Put it back on, she said. Not yet, he murmured, setting it on his foot out of her reach. Leave it on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For a while. You got me instead. Okay, I'm creeped out. <laughs> but I forgot to tell you an important part. They're in a hayloft in a barn. She's climbed a ladder with a wooden leg, and now she's in the hayloft, about to have sex with the guy, and she doesn't have her leg. Climax in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and that, that story was called A Good Man is Hard to Find. So <laughs> um, we talk about uh, fast forwarding and drawing out scenes, right? Yeah, this, this was something I had a lot of trouble with. I was really, really good at fast forwarding things, but I was very, like, packing a lot of information into a, a long sentence or a bunch of clauses. 
I had a really hard time like slowing down and drawing scenes out. And um, I know we've given a shout out to him before, but Tom French really helped me with that basically by walking through a scene in a movie and stop framing it and having you look at what happened in that movie when even when you think like nothing has happened. Um, so that's a good exercise to try. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> you know, just when, when you look, when you think nothing's happening, you know, are, are the windshield wipers moving? Is the bird outside the window singing? Is the rain pattering on the back window? You know, all these things that happen when things aren't happening really also helps build that suspense and draw out a scene before something's about to happen. Um, but skipping ahead, and, and especially in, in journalism, my goodness, the more Econ economical we can be with our words and the more information we can pack in a short amount of time, the more we have space to actually tell stories and to be writers, right? So this is from um, a story called Spoils by Nadine Gordimer. We're listening to the news. What? What are you going on about? What? What indeed? No, which? Which is it I choose to be no part of? The boy who threw a stone at the police had both his arms broken by them was sodomized by prisoners into whose cell he was thrown, the kidnapped diplomat and the group who sent his fourth finger by mail to his family, the girl doused with petrol and burned alive as a traitor, those starved by drought or those drowned by flood. And it goes on and on to tell you what he doesn't want to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot packed in there. Just a it's ton. A lifetime and a village and a war and a, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but he tells it in the negative, right? Like, here's what I'm not going to talk about so that you know everything that happened in the past really quick and then you can get back to the narrative. Um, you talk about leaving ambiguity for readers to fill in the blanks. And, um, and, and, I, I, and, the, and also the whole idea of just how much backstory is necessary for a reader. Um, and some of the best fiction, they just, they get away with as little as possible, right? Just enough. Just enough. Exactly. So you have, um, here you picked another Truman Capote. Yeah, and I think, you know, young journalists, and, and I'm putting myself in this group 20 years ago, um, it's really hard to be sparse with the background because you usually spend a lot of time reporting it and you think, oh, I need to tell everybody everything I learned. And so I've gotten a lot of help from you, Maria, and Mike Wilson was a great help with this editors who can help me go, I only need this much background, you know, give me two paragraphs. Or when I did the Evil Knievel story, I had spent a whole day researching his biography and Mike goes, yeah, tell me he crashed in the Snake River Canyon and was a favorite on the Wild World Sports, you know, like giving you permission to sort of leave everything else on the table. But I love the short stories because actually sometimes some of the best ones leave you wondering because they don't fill in the blanks. So it engages the readers by wanting to fill those in themselves. Um, and Truman Capote is really good at that. So he, he starts this whole story, it's called The Walls Are Cold, in the middle, not only in the middle of a scene, but in the middle of a sentence. And I think that's so interesting. It starts with an ellipsis. So Grant just said to them, come along to a wonderful party. And well, it was as easy as that, really. I think it was genius to pick them up. God only knows they might resurrect us from the grave. The girl who was talking tapped her cigarette ash on the Persian railroad and looked apologetically at her hostess. That's from The Walls Are Cold. Um, yeah. Mara, I don't know if you remember, I did a story with you years ago about the guy who drove the bus for the, the jam band Fish. And that was one of the first leads that I really tried that in, where I tried to like drop people in. And that was, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I, I tried to just drop people in the, the middle of this guy driving this band bus after a concert when everybody's wasted and high in the band bus and he's trying to stay awake. It was like, there's a time of night. Well, actually it's morning, but it sure feels like night. 
right? And that was the rambling what, beginning. You, you still remember it from verbatim. Wow. That was my first lead that I can remember because I, I, I remember thinking, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. She did. That was good. Yeah. Um, so you see, Lane really does get inspired by, by all, this, uh, all these uh, short stories. Um, dialogue, obviously, the, you know, I, when, if you read fiction, if the dialogue's bad, it can be really, really bad. But when they do it well, um, and of course, they're pulling it out of their heads, but when they do it well, um, it just really helps with so many things, with, with voice, with character, with, with sense of place, um, you know. So, and you picked uh, J.D. Salinger for this one. Pretty yeah. mouth. I looked, at a, oh, yeah. sorry. I, I looked at a bunch of examples because a lot of time I think we equate dialogue with um, people of other ethnicities, but it, it seems sometimes really hard not to appropriate. You know, like if I'm reading Zora Neale Hurston or, or I'm reading um, Toni Morrison or something like that, it, for me as a white woman now to read that out loud sounds a little bit like I'm appropriating that voice. And I, I don't know if I would even attempt to write in dialogue in a culture that wasn't mine. You know what I mean? So J.D. Salinger, you know, he's like a sassy college student, and I felt like I could, uh, <laughs> I could emulate that a little bit. Um, it also, this uh, illustrated to me that uh, phone calls, you know, are often a really good um, thing to narrate. And you can, if you can overhear someone's phone conversation, um, that sometimes puts you in a rhythm. You know, you can, you can recognize that in your own phone conversations, but it also gives you that as a reader that, like, sort of titillating feeling that you're overhearing something. You know, you're like eavesdropping in on something. So yeah, this is J.D. Salinger from um, Pretty Mouth and Green My Eyes. I wake you? No, no, I'm in bed reading. Anything wrong? You sure I didn't wake you? Honest to God? No, no, absolutely, the green man said. As a matter of fact, I've been averaging about four lousy hours. The reason I called Lee, did you happen to notice when Joni was leaving? Did you happen to notice if she left with the Ellenbogens by any chance? No, I, I didn't, Arthur. Didn't she leave with you? There's barely any attribution in there, you know, but you're just hearing the back and forth and that's really where they drop the promise of the piece in that one little conversation. Mm -hmm. Talk about um, small bites and a tight frame. So how close can you come into a moment, right? How, again, that's another, it's another place where you're trying to decide how little can you get away with. And also like, does that, is it more powerful to show less? Yeah, and I think you're really good about helping me and other reporters tighten that frame, Maria. It, it, sometimes you really feel like you need someone else to give you permission to go, just write about that one day, just write about that one hour, you know? And, and I think it helps if you can decide that ahead of time that lets you leave a lot on the table, you know? Um, I was thinking about a, short story by Ernest Hemingway called The Secret Life of Francis Maycomer, and it's about after an elephant hunt. Um, but it's, it's illustrative of a lot of other things too. And so I, I thought about talking about this author named Sandra Cisneros, who actually writes in small bites. Um, her book, The House on Mango Street, is all little vignettes, like two or three pages long. I don't think anything's longer than three pages. And each of them is kind of about a moment in her experience growing up in childhood, uh, cross-culture, with her grandmother and, and the other women on her street. And this was a little short little story where, you know, we always talk about you want to find something at stake. Um, and it can be as big as is the kid gonna live or as small as this one is, which say like this little girl's trying to get enough money to buy a bike. If you give me $5, I'll be your friend forever. 
That's what the little one tells me. $5 is cheap since I don't have any friends, except Kathy, who's only my friend till Tuesday. $5, $5. She's trying to get somebody to chip in so they can buy a bicycle from this kid named Tito. They already have $10, and all they need is five more. Only $5, she says. Don't talk to them, says Kathy. Can't you see they smell like a broom? Then we talk about, uh, so alternative structures, right? Which is a, a, fiction is a great place to find inspiration for different kinds of approaches. Um, I mean, and even, I know you're inspired a lot by plays too. Yeah, I tried to write one story because it sounded to me like it should be an August Wilson play. And so we kind of wrote that all in dialogue, which was inspired by play format. And then there was another, um, a short story called Mixtape that I think Dave Eggers wrote that he basically uh, summarized the summers of his life through what song was playing on the radio and like how those, all, all those songs worked together to be one narrative of his summer. And I wrote a, a story about that, about all these spring breaks I'd spent with my best friend um, through college and then we became mothers together. And I think you were on one of those trips, Maria, when we all took all the kids and it was like the antithesis of a college girl spring break because now we all had babies, you know, but I did it through songs that we listened to and this one tie-dye bikini that I used to fit in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so voice, obviously, um, great fiction writers. Um, I just, you just feel like, to me, I, we, we talked about this in other podcasts, but I, voice is, is, to me, is the authority that the, that the writer takes and you can, and they just take such control over it. So you were, um, you were picking from Dorothy Parker in the waltz. Dorothy Parker was one of the first writers who made me realize that you could have an internal voice in your writing. You know, you could have one set of the writing where it was what was happening and maybe how you wanted to present yourself to the world. And the other that was that stuff in your head that you're telling yourself to suppress, like, don't say that out loud, you know. And um, I've always liked this story. So it's called The Waltz. And she was a journalist, too, I should say. Dorothy Parker was a journalist um, who wrote a lot of nonfiction as well. Yeah. I'm thinking this is probably half nonfiction, at least. <laughs> what can you say when a man asks you to dance with him? I most certainly will not dance with you. I'll see you in hell first. Why, thank you. I'd like to, awfully, but I'm having labor pains. Oh, yes, let's do dance together. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't a scaredy cat about catching my berry-berry. No, there was nothing for me to do but say I'd adore to. Well, we might as well get it over with. All right, Cannonball, let's run on the field. You won the toss. You can lead. Why, I think it's more of a waltz, really, isn't it? We might just listen to the music a second. Shall we? Oh, yes, it's a waltz. Mind? Why, I'm simply thrilled. I'd love to waltz with you. I'd love to waltz with you. I would love to waltz with you. I'd love to have my tonsils out. I'd love to be in a midnight fire at sea. Well, it's too late now. We're getting underway. Yeah, definitely a journalist. She got a lot of tood. <laughs> Exactly. All right, we got, we got one more. Um, so sorry, this podcast went a little long, but we, uh, you know, wanted to give you uh, give you a few things to think about. Um, we should shout and, out to Claire McNeil. This was her idea too. Yes, that's true. Claire wanted Lane to talk about fiction and, and what she gets from fiction. So um, this uh, endings, and you picked one of the most famous endings ever, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I didn't used to think about endings when I wrote news. I kind of like found my favorite quote and let whoever it was just sum it up or I got to my 40 inches and went, okay, 
there you go, editor, like you figure it out, you know? Pretty much and, one of the biggest problems in journalism is <laughs> we don't think about endings. It's like, okay, there it is, we're done. Yeah, okay. so okay, that's your only takeaway. Spend some time thinking about your endings, you know, and, and try to figure out not necessarily what the words are gonna be, but where your story's gonna actually end. Um, and I think if you can surprise somebody or make them remember somebody, something or give them a tear or something at the end, it's like a gift if someone follows through all of your words, they should have a nice ending to take away with the bow on it. Um, so I guess some of you probably have heard, read the story, The Gift of the Magi. Oh, Henry is known for his famous surprising endings. Um, it's a young couple who's very, very poor and for Christmas, the, the young lady has really long, beautiful hair, and that's her only treasure. And the man has a gold watch that was his grandfather's, and that's his only treasure. White fingers pulled off the paper, and then a cry of joy, and then a change to tears. For there lay the combs, the combs that Della had seen in a shop window and loved for a long time. Beautiful combs with jewels perfect for her beautiful hair. She'd known they cost too much for her to buy them. She looked at them without the least hope of owning them. And now they were hers, but her hair was gone. She held them to her heart and at last was able to look up and say, my hair grows so fast, Jim. And then she jumped up and cried, oh, oh. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful gift. She held it out to him in her open hand. The gold seemed to shine softly as with her own warm and loving spirit. Isn't it perfect, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at your watch a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how they look together. Jim sat down and smiled. Della, he said, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use now. I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs. Now I think we should have our dinner. Aww. <laughs> and I'm cheering up a little reading that. <laughs> um, That's a great love story. <laughs> she is. She's really tearing up. She's <laughs> having a hard time with that. Um, those are great. You can tell you're an English lit major. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't know, I think, I mean, I've always been a reader, but I didn't really know until I started writing um, narrative nonfiction with you, how much reading all this fiction would have influenced the way I want to tell a story. Yeah, so definitely. And, you know, if you guys have um, suggestions of stories that really motivate you or inspire you, um, send them along because we'd be happy to do another episode with some of, some of what uh, you guys are, are your favorites some of your favorite fiction absolutely and from novels and stuff too it doesn't have to be short stories yeah okay. all right so if you have a question for lane or want to suggest a podcast topic find us on our facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com that's w-r-i-t-e-l-a-n-e at tampabay.com join us next week on wednesday morning for the next podcast this podcast was pr produced by ayana ishmael music was composed and performed by dan de gregory Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.